This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Monday, November 4th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I refereed a debate. I played that on Friday. And you know, the socialists, they weren't being that social. Then again, neither was the raging Cajun James Carville being Mr. Nice Guy. Also, there, Joe Lockhart. Joe Lockhart doesn't have a sobriquet like Raging Cajun. What are you going to say? The sensible man of Irish extraction who is loath to cause a distraction? Yeah, Raging Cajun, a little bit better. But I've been thinking a lot about socialism. Tomorrow, I'll get more into Elizabeth Warren's health care plan. I think a little later in the week, I will muse about the phrase neoliberal. You know, it's an insult. You know, it's pejorative. But what does it mean? I tried to find out. I also think the ideas of socialists are definitely worth considering. I think often, though, the comportment of socialists, much less so. They sometimes, I find, have the attitude, wait, you're considering my ideas? You're 80% through processing them? Well, you're an oppressive pile of garbage. You're a corporatist. You're a, oh, what's the worst thing I call? You're a neoliberal. So. Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax will not hit anyone making less than $50 million. And when it comes to billionaires, the tax is going to be 6% on all wealth worth more than a billion dollars. So that means Bezos, Buffett, and Bill, Bill Gates, will pay each year, if the Forbes numbers as of today are right, $18 billion to the U.S. government. Wow. That is more than the tax revenue contributed by citizens of 14 different states. Wow. Yeah. The government would get $18 billion billion dollars from those guys just for asking and every year well once you take the first 18 billion they'll have a little less the next year diminishing returns but you know i'm thinking what can go wrong I, I, lots could go wrong bill bezos buffett they might not like it but today i actually wanted to point out a contradiction of the, the billionaire tax left right and center the kcrw show had on as a guest the intellectual architect of warren's wealth tax the french economist gabriel zuckman and he went on about how the wealth tax would pay for her entire medicare plan and so much more the wealth tax is enormously popular unless i guess if you're a billionaire it will fund so much of her agenda that separates her from the non-socialist candidate look Listen to what I said. I didn't say she's a socialist. I said that only the socialists are where she is on taxation. Okay, so the host of Left, Right, and Center had on Zuckman and had on his left, his right, his center. And on the left was Elizabeth Bruning of the Washington Post. She is a socialist. She has written such columns as, it's time to give socialism a try. And a few months after that, it's time to reclaim socialism from the dirty word category. And a few months after that, It's time to let socialism walk to school by itself, only we may want to subtly trail it by about half a block on the first day. Okay, I made that one up. But still, she likes socialism. She wants us to think about socialism. Here was host Josh Barrow talking to Elizabeth Brunig. Liz, uh, a talking point you hear from people on the left is that every billionaire is a policy failure. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's uh, attributable to Dan Riffle, uh, who's a great voice. And, And I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, you can look back in history, although, you know, I think the the concentration of billionaires is a relatively new thing. Um, and, and you can say there were billionaires who, in the process of making their money, uh, contributed quite a bit and, and, and added some stuff to our uh, our culture and society that have been very useful. And I think that point is well taken. But I do think that the greater point of the billionaires as a policy failure framing is that it points out that it's our choice to have inequality as concentrated as it is. 
I don't think that's what the phrase points to. I guess I'm literal. I guess I'm so simple. I evaluate the phrase of the phrase, and it's saying if you're a billionaire, something went wrong. Paul McCartney's a billionaire. He's a policy failure. Oprah's a billionaire. She's a policy failure. Her media empire failed when it began to reimburse her past the 999999999 dollar. That next dollar, failure. It's not what I'm getting at. It's not what I want to pick at right here. It's this. The entire discussion was how the wealth tax on billionaires would fund this dream healthcare system. But if billionaires are a failure, and failures should be stopped or solved, then what are we saying? Are we saying we should want to stop the failure that is billionaires? Because if we do so, we will have to scrap the predicted success that is the Elizabeth Warren healthcare plan. Lots of other plans that she has. I hear the same thing with sin taxes. Well, the people are going to sin, so we should tax them, and it will have the dual effect of raising some money from the government, but also trying to convince them not to sin. It is unsustainable in the long term, maybe even the medium term, a lot of states are finding out. Taxes discourage behavior, and taxing the heck out of billionaires might work to some degree, but you can't rely on it as a sustained form of funding. If you disincentivize the behavior of amassing billions, you will not, for the long term, be able to collect taxes at high rates from billionaires who you are trying to tax out of existence. There is, in fact, a growing body of economics looking at this, and states are finding that taxing the hell out of tobacco does drive down smoking, but then it pretty quickly drives down tax revenue. It's a paradox, but a paradox as predictable as can be imagined which makes you wonder if Team Warren ever imagined it or just hoped we wouldn't notice. On the show today, I spiel about how the White House is handling the scads of damaging information about Ukraine. Should we give Kellyanne and Hogan Gidley the airtime if they are only to befoul it? Yes, I say yes. But first, Thomas Chatterton Williams was, according to the jacket on his book, Born of a Black Father, from the segregated South and a white mother. The jacket puts those colors in quotes, and so does Williams. In fact, he seeks to go further than put them in quotes. He wants to put them in the dustbin of history. Upon moving to France and having a child of very, very light skin, Williams decided to simply reject labels and ideas of race. His new book is Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race, Thomas Chatterton Williams, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thomas Chatterton Williams is a writer, a really interesting writer. He's a contributor to the New York Times Magazine. He's a nonfiction writer, but the two books he's written are memoirs, and they're not navel-gazy. Here's a fascinating little quirky tale about my life. They're really an examination of the place he occupies in the culture through the eyes of others and through his own eyes. His new book is called Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Should I call me. you Tom or Thomas? My dad told me I always have to be Thomas. That's so good. I never called you Your dad's a big, like many dads, your dad's a big influence. But one thing I learned about your dad is he's now how old? 82? Yeah, exactly. And you're... Th- 38. 38. Okay. Yeah. So he was kind of an old dad. Yeah, he was 44 when I was born. So he was maybe teaching you the ways of the world and the ways of race in America from... A perspective of someone who spent a lot of his life in the South during the Jim Crow era. That's exactly right. My dad's old enough to be my grandfather. And it's recently struck me that he sits exactly generationally two generations after the last generation to be born before emancipation and two generations ahead of my children. Right. He's, He's the midpoint between these kind of white-looking children in Paris and, and actually, like, our slave ancestors. So he grew up in a very different America than I knew. He grew up in Texas under segregation in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. He was an adult, well into his adulthood before civil rights. Yeah. So does this mean, I think it's Chris Rock who has the joke, but if you ever, or maybe it was even Barack Obama who said, you want to talk racism, talk to an old black person (laughs) from the South and they understand racism. But also I find that a lot of times people who grew up in your dad's milieu look at the current situation and say, not that it's not so bad, but you don't know what oppression is, kids. Yeah, my father has a kind of interesting perspective on this because he knows actual serious oppression, so he wouldn't really think microaggressions are very important, you know? Right. But, you know, he also has a kind of, he has a race realism, or, or, or he understands that race is not real coming from the South, but that racism really is real and has harmed him severely. So when my daughter was born, and I kind of, he came two weeks after her birth to Paris, and I held her up to him and I said, well, she doesn't look so black, does she? And he kind of said, well, you know, she's just a Palomino. And he said, you know, I grew up with a couple of kids that looked like this on the segregated side of town. Like, this has always existed yeah. in the black community. So and to he, you, you said that's a horse racing term, it right? Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's piebald? He, he, he has all types of terms uh-huh. uh, that you don't hear on the East Coast. Was this, was it your dad who was, was I hearing about you saying that, okay, excuse me if I got this wrong, but he had two birth certificates? No, this is Adrian Piper's father, a woman that was very influential in my thinking about this uh, conceptual artist and philosopher. I profiled her in the New York Times. Right. She gave up blackness. She retired publicly from blackness in 2012. Yeah. As somewhat of an art gesture, but also kind of seriously. Mm -hmm. And she had two black parents, but both were from heavily mixed families. And her father 
had two birth certificates. The first designated him white, and his mother corrected it, and the second designated him an octoroon. Right. Which was technically black at the time. Yeah. So... I can't retire from whiteness, though. I'm yes, not a, yes, well, you, I don't you, think we, in America we, I'm allowed to. We need to. you to. We need <laughs> you. Actually, the whole thing hinges on, on, on white people first understanding how their race has been made, that it's a race like any other, yeah. that it, it's been made in society in specific ways, and then kind of achieving a perspective that rejects that. So I would just ask you if you want to step out of whiteness, out of monolithic whiteness, uh-huh. where specifically does your family come from? Right. What's so, your ethnicity? Little Italian, little Jewish. Mm-hmm. So that's already a, a clearer way of talking about we've only been are. white like for the last 20 minutes <laughs> yeah truly yeah you know monolithic whiteness that, that lumps jews italians irish albanians russians white anglo-saxon protestants i mean that's really really new what an innovation <laughs> but but i find that in america today the impetus among you know forward-thinking people is to confront from someone like me to confront my whiteness, to understand whiteness, to take a course in whiteness studies, to own my whiteness, which has the, um, I think, the implication to feel a little bit guilty about my whiteness. Like, at what point then can I retire from whiteness? Right. See, I don't think the guilt is very helpful. I think it is. But it, don't you think it's there? Don't you think that yeah, this is absolutely. undergirding very a much so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that it's good to be aware of what has happened in this country, obviously. Right. I don't think that it's good to feel personally guilty for things that have happened before you were here. I think you do have to understand how your race has been constructed in this society and what whiteness means and how it works as a way of being able to kind of resist that and subvert it. But the kind of secular religion of anti-racism that has white people kind of at the center of the story as, as a fallen people with original sin that they must permanently atone for. Yeah. I don't think that helps black people at all. And the other side of that is that black people are asked to essentially asked to keep revisiting the wounds. Right. And that has religious connotations also. Right. Yeah. This a is like the self, a permanently damaged people. Yeah. This is like the self-flagellation yeah. of, you know, Catholics in the Philippines have a day where they literally flagellate yeah. themselves. It's a lot like that. And that doesn't do anything for the, for the, for the locals. No, but it does keep uh, the wound present and yeah. remembered. And it's a bad thing to have no history. It's a terrible thing to not understand history or to walk through life blithely or to not Mm -hmm. understand how the actual systems work. And it's a difficult thing to then properly contextualize. And I guess in a way, if we're being kind, this whole experiment and how much to acknowledge whiteness or blackness and race and racism is an example of like how to properly contextualize it. But it seems a lot more fraught than those phrases than just to put it in the right perspective. If you're doing it wrong, you're a bad person, you know? Right. Absolutely. I think it's really important to understand that racism creates race and not the other way around. So we do have to be aware of racism, fight it, understand how it operates in the society. But you cannot just be an anti-racist and oppose racism and think that you can adhere to the categories that were fundamentally created by racism. I think you have to go further with an eye to the future and be anti-race on top of being anti-racist. The categories are irredeemable. Which comes first? Which comes first, absolutely, is we have to be aware of racism, fight racism, resist racism. I think that, you know, real material solutions, possibly reparations, things like this are certainly they should they belong on the table. Mm-hmm. People need to be on equal footing, probably, as a way of overcoming race and racism. 
But you're never going to be able to salvage these categories. They fundamentally imply hierarchies and value judgments that are based in slavery, based in an encounter between Europe and Africa. Right. Based based in, you know, discredited ethno research. But this is what you said. First, we have to retire racism. Then maybe we could move on retiring race. That's why I am asserting that I can't retire from being white as easily. And it's not easy for you to, quote unquote, retire from being black. Just if I want to do the right thing by the mores of society now, I don't think it will be assumed that I've confronted racism sufficiently at any point so that if I said, all right, I'm retiring from whiteness, don't think of me as right. white, people will say, okay, that's acceptable. There, there's a different way of saying it. You don't, it doesn't have to be like, I'm out. Don't mm-hmm. have, that's like my 21-year-old cousin in California. <laughs> like, I'm out. I, like, I, just look, I just believe in the content of people's characters, so don't talk to me about this anymore. Yeah. That's not what I'm advocating. But, you know, you might say that this, this isn't real. I'm not going to reify these concepts. I'm going to understand how my race functions in this society. That's a step. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we can just stumble into a better future that we can't first envision. Okay, so let's go back a little bit and let's talk about becoming unblack, retiring from that. What was the unlike? Yeah, I wouldn't say unblack. (laughs) I would say that the fact of my daughter's artificial whiteness was what prompted me. I had, Which li- to say I had lived this my baby, whole life. As this a... baby is born. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe your complexion to our listeners who can't see you. So I'm tan-skinned. You know, I, I was accepted in my community in New Jersey as a light-skinned black dude. Had an afro before I lost my hair. The white kids didn't think I was white, and the black kids accepted a variety of skin tones within their own community. So we, my brother and I were light-skinned black dudes. I lived with the contradiction that my mom is a wasp and my dad is made as black in this country without very much cognitive dissonance. It didn't really... We were just a black family. Yes. It was the artificiality of my daughter's racial construction that really made me question all of this and made me ask... What does it mean if I'm a black person that can have a child that looks like this, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, ivory skin, ivory really skin. blonde, really, white. really blonde, yeah. really white skin? And what does it mean that a person that the world will take as white can be 20, at least 20% sub-Saharan African descended? What's your wife's uh, ethnicity or what others would say about her, what she says about herself? My wife, see, Europeans are a little bit different. My wife, monoracial whiteness is less of a thing in Europe. My mm-hmm. wife would consider herself French and consider that when she's in Italy, that's really a foreign place. And she doesn't right. really think that like there's some unifying thing that links her to Italians, Portuguese, Greeks. She's French, mm-hmm. you know? And then within France, I mean, France gets very ethnically diverse. Like P- the Celtic region in Brittany is not the same as like the Southern region on the Basque border with Spain. You oh, know, totally those people... Not. yeah. They're French, but they have very different linguistic and tribal traditions. Yeah. One of the things that you say is that the way of describing society now, the idea of, you know, oppress, American society, oppressive white supremacy, it doesn't, to your mind, accurately describe the conditions of today. It's more applicable to conditions of, I don't know, when? Pick a time frame. Well, I just don't think that it really deals with the complexity of life as it's actually lived. You know, I have white family members, and I, you can never make a universal point through the particular, but in my own life, the educated cosmopolitan members of my family are the black members, and the kind of um, the members of my family who have had harder lives are some of the white members. In any white family, you've got some really successful cousins or whatever, but, yes. you know, there's, there's a real diversity of, of privilege and experience on the white side of my family, and so I don't feel that, um, that they 
occupy a position in society that I'm supposed to feel inferior to. That's one thing. The other thing is that, uh, that that's problematic about talking always about white supremacy is that it kind of it centers the white experience as the only one that matters, as white people as the only people with agency, and as black people as kind of forever conditional. And black people can only kind of try to white people can do anything they want. They can behave miserably. They can behave magnanimously. They can be generous. They can allow black people to breathe. They can stop black people from breathing. But black people can't do anything but kind of try to persuade white people. And white people actually are the only actors in society. Yeah, and right, I, right. I, I They're the accept. vectors of yeah. change. And, and, and this is part Here's of... Here's how we get change. We got to do it through exactly. white people. And, yeah. and I have to push back against <laughs> that. And the idea that white people must feel guilty and atone for themselves, it keeps them at the center of this story. And there's a lot of narcissism at play with this kind of uh, white guilt complex as well and always raising your hand and acknowledging your your privilege you're the villain but you're still the protagonist okay but let's be practical let's talk about practically you're you're advising or you're living in ferguson missouri right after the killing of michael brown happens and you know who controls the power structure you know who controls the police force you know how the black community is used as essentially you know a source of uh funding the government through fines like how do you get change unless you do some changing through the white power structure. No, that's power and that's class. But I think that, you know, what we're really talking about there is what we think of as race where it intersects with real poverty, with real intergenerational poverty and and a lack of political representation and power. That's not... What I push back against is the idea that that's the universal black experience in America. Right. Ferguson. Right. It's not. But... It's, impo- it's important and it, it's a reality and that is one kind of American reality, but it's not helpful for us to only think in terms of the black experience through Michael Brown or Ferguson. That's true, but if it's generally true, and this is a stat that I read in credit, if it's generally true that a white high school graduate has as much wealth as a black college graduate in America, that is a lived reality. Intergenerational wealth transfers are real, and this is part of why I think that the most persuasive thing that Tanahasi Coates ever wrote, and something that I think is fantastically argued and convincing, is the case for reparations. I think that serious reparations proposals could do a lot to kind of close some of those gaps. As a white person, I would think that my fellow white people might say something like, okay, we're done now. That's, that's one yeah. of the problems with reparations. Okay, now we're good. But I do <laughs> think that we have to have... I don't think we can have this kind of perpetual will never be done. I think we have to agree on what could potentially make as many people as possible whole and then accept that we have to get to a point of closure. Right. What if it were done via baby bonds or some other government program, Mm -hmm. which isn't explicitly calling itself reparations, but has the effect of closing the racial wealth gap? Whatever would do it, I would be in favor of, you know, uh, the the name or whatever that's slapped on it is less important than actually making people whole. Well, I think a lot of government programs, especially those favored by Barack Obama, were, if they were put into effect and, and carried out, would benefit people who deserve to have the benefits. And oftentimes that is black people in our society and Absolutely. people who have not benefited from inherited wealth. Absolutely. See, I think I think of all the issues, some to me strike me as very, very subjective and tenuous, an issue of appropriation. Right. Yes, Elvis definitely appropriated the music. I have no idea if some kid, like some current white rapper is appropriating a culture. Let's put that aside. I think the racial wealth gap is the number one 
problem where race cannot be ignored. Right. But see, it's not race. It's a certain group of people at a certain time over a certain amount of time in this country were oppressed and exploited and locked out of housing markets and job opportunities and government kind of programs that allowed the white middle class and immigration and recent white immigrants to kind of develop wealth. Those people and their descendants should be made whole. Yeah. That's not necessarily talking about anything in terms of blood and skin and bones. You know, my son... Right, but it does correlate. It it does largely, it largely correlates. depend sure. on but, the, you know, the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren But talking about blood and people. skin and bones, a Nigerian, a Jamaican, a descendant of Mississippi slaves, these people are all considered biologically black. Th- yes. This mono monolithic blackness, that doesn't help you get at making people whole who are the descendants of, of chattel slaves. I think that w- you, you can get rid of the idea of race and you, can, and you can have a serious reparations conversation. Thomas Chatterton Williams is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and his new memoir out now is called Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. And now the spiel. The question of today is, is Kellyanne Conway good at her job? Before you prejudge, let us consider the evidence. Now, the administration, as we know, has to say something. The Republican defenders have to say something, you know, emit some combination of mouth noises that add up to words to give Trump defenders on Capitol Hill and in the public something to say in answer to the Ukraine deal. What that something is doesn't really matter because at one point it was the idea that it was just hearsay and then it was the idea that it wasn't a quid pro quo, but then it became an acknowledgement that it was a quid pro quo, but who cares? And also, yeah, it was hearsay, but who cares? It's just that the actual argument, what they really want to say is something like, go fuck yourself, Trump, 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 we love Trump, we hate you, Trump, Trump, Trump. It's not a good thing to say, so you got to come up with some other words. Here was a combination of plosives and guttural noises and labiodental non-sibilant fricatives that form phonemes. Kellyanne Conway is one big phoneme here in this interview with Chris Wallace on Fox. But we've seen um, different people going up there and testifying. What we haven't seen is the fullness of the eight or ten hours each of them has spent testifying because everything's, I guess, Adam Schiff's growing mushrooms in the dark in a secret process. I guess I'm really unfamiliar with the fungal sciences. I did not know that toothpaste was involved. But at the risk of indulging this cavity creep, let me break down Conway's argument. Kellyanne Conway is upset that Adam Schiff has held hearings in secure settings. Of course, if the Democrats began this investigation into national security issues by holding hearings in open settings, the Republicans now criticizing the process. Oh, they'd be fine with that. What? Possible secrets spilled into the open session? Yeah, no problem. Come on. We all know what's going on here, no matter which process, what process, any process that the Democrats use to investigate, the Republicans were going to find fault. Because the Republicans' problem isn't the process, it's the very fact of the investigation. So just as at one point, the administration was hammering that there was no quid pro quo, and that was since abandoned, and then it was always all hearsay, and that was abandoned. Now they are actually abandoning their process objections. Here was Trump. I'd rather go into the details of the case rather than process. Process is wonderful, but I think you ought to look at the case, and the case is very simple. It's quick. All right. 
So Chris Wallace played that clip and said, all right, let's look at the case and directed Kellyanne to what Lieutenant Colonel Vindman found. Here was his question. Does it matter that Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who was actually on the call, was so upset about it afterwards, he went to see the NSC lawyer? Yes, and his, and by the way, I'll never question his patriotism. I do question his interpretation and why it would be relevant in this case, because it was rejected. And in fact, the Washington Post and New York Times this week, Chris, said that what Lieutenant Colonel Vindman suggested be added or corrected in the transcript would not have, quote, fundamentally changed what the lawmakers believe of that call. Oh, It didn't fundamentally change the lawmaker's understanding because the lawmaker's understanding of the call was that it was an impeachable offense. If Vindman isn't the smoking gun, it's only because there already exists a bloody hatchet, a dented lead pipe, and a flesh-flecked garret. Here's the paragraph in the New York Times that Kellyanne Conway was quoting. The phrase is, do not fundamentally change lawmakers' understanding of the call, which was first reported by the CIA whistleblower whose complaint set off the impeachment inquiry. There are plenty of other examples of Mr. Trump referring to Ukraine-related conspiracy theories and asking for investigations of the Biden family. Yeah, I guess it didn't change their understanding of the improper quid pro quo because they had a very accurate understanding that it was, in fact, an improper quid pro quo. My God. Which brings us to the question, is Kellyanne Conway doing her job? Well, if her job is to make sure the president is pleased with her ability to seem to win a point here or there or to get the high hand in exchange by spewing out so many half facts that it's impossible to correct them all in the moment, then I guess she's winning in his eyes. For the record, I think Chris Wallace did a fine job with Kellyanne. She is a whirlwind of bullshit. And there is no raincoat in the world that will get you or your viewers out of that unsullied. And I do believe that if you add up all the coverage that good news media did, quote unquote, platforming Conway or platforming Hogan Gidley or other members of the administration who I always hear shouldn't even be given airtime, I think it was proper to give them airtime. Because it seems to me that the vast majority of Trump supporters, sure, are impervious to facts and argument and evidence. Agreed. But we're not here for the vast majority of Trump supporters. You can still impeach a president even if he keeps the vast majority of his supporters. So far, all of this questioning and uncovering of evidence and even allowing his defenders to defend him, but so poorly, it has had some effect, a minor effect, but an important effect. Trump has gone from quite unpopular to slightly more unpopular. So 538 had him at 53 disapproval, 43% approval on September 24th, okay? So he was negative 10 on September 24th. The next day is when the administration released the partial transcript. The public seemed not to buy its promised exonerating effects. The public seemed not to find it exculpatory as was promised. The next day, day after that, September 25th, Nancy Pelosi announced that the House would begin, quote, a formal impeachment inquiry. This wasn't the vote from last week, but it's when the speaker said that the six committees with jurisdiction would be considering the facts of this case as an impeachment inquiry. There's been a month and more than a week since then. We've seen career officials. 
We've seen hired goons. We've seen Giuliani associates being arrested. Yeah, we've seen uh, al-Baghdadi being killed. But now, from that net disapproval rating of minus 10, according to 538 today, the president has a 55% disapproval rating and a 41% approval rating. So now he's minus 14. It's not huge. In a sane world, he'd be at like minus 90 with the supporters being just white nationalists and dual citizen Saudis and extended members of the Kushner family. But slowly, it counts. It accretes the paucity of any good defense, the sheer tonnage of the evidence, the character of the career professionals who raised red flags out of duty and patriotism. It's had an effect, a slight effect. But remember, the president never started out with broad support or even support at all. He was always more disapproved of than approved of. It doesn't seem like Donald Trump's dead-enders are ever going to give up the ghost. Look, Nixon's last approval poll in office on August 5th, 1974, he left August 9th, 1974, had Nixon at 66% disapproval. Today, Trump's at 55% disapproval. It just shows there's always going to be a bunch of hardcore holdouts who will not change. But I do believe the slow drip, drip, drip of filthy water has turned the public off and is turning more of the public off than was turned off before. So I say, let's keep letting the spokesman on, and let's keep vetting them. And if Chris Wallace can do a pretty good job in the moment, but can't catch all the lies, I will be happy to don the hazmat suit the next day and hold Kellyanne to account. Let the spinners spin. Rather have them spin on the air than the rest of us spin in our graves that they could righteously claim to have been silenced. There is this debate, as I mentioned, about platforming and deplatforming. I say I'm happy to hear them out. I'm happy if they're challenged. I'm happy if they're pressed for answers, better answers than they're able to give. Maybe what they think of as a platform is really more of a scaffold. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Daniel Schrader thinks every Bartlett pair is a policy failure. He's more of an unjust man. Christina DeJosa, just producer, thinks we should rid the world of diphtheria with a steep diphtheria tax, both making it expensive to have diphtheria, which is a big disincentive. Also, the tax would provide funds for the eradication of diphtheria by generating diphtheria-combating ideas, like, say, a diphtheria tax. The gist. In 2016, there were 15,000 homicides in America. The smoking gun in 11,000 of them was a gun. Knives killed 1,600 times, blunt objects almost 500 times, and what the FBI defines as personal weapons, hands, fists, feet, etc., killed 656 times. See footnote? Footnote, pushed is included in personal weapons. Umpuru tapuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.